I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. I'm here with Adam DeVille. Um, hello, Adam. Nice to hello. see you. And you? Now, Adam is uh, Director of Humanities and Associate Professor of Theology at uh, the University of St. Francis in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Editor-in-Chief of Logos, which is a journal of Eastern Christian studies. Um, and I've, uh, I'm interested in him because I'll just get the book up here because he wrote this book, uh, which is uh, Everything Hidden Shall Be Revealed, Ridding the Church of Abuses of Sex and Power. Um, now, this was given to me, this book was handed to me, actually, Adam, by um, a priest locally where I am in California who'd read okay. an article I'd written on the organization of the parish, ah, okay. which on the face of it, uh, according to, uh, I, I, I go to a Melkite church, actually, okay. and our bishop is pushing what he says is, is a, a model that comes out of the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, and it's it very much pushing lay involvement. Yeah, uh, yeah. according to people's gifts and you know people have an understanding of their roles uh, and it wasn't about the the current crisis in the church mm -hmm. and the abuse crisis um which is uh terrible I, I i don't want to diminish that at all mm -hmm. but what i was interested in in this book is the the fact that you think that the the same uh if I've understood this right, the same problems that the church has in retaining and involving people, and also, if I might say, just even if people are coming to the parishes, that, that there is a genuine sense of the faith present mm -hmm. in a parish. The mm -hmm. parishes are vibrant. So that's, that's what I'm frustrated about. Mm -hmm. And you're describing this and saying, well, actually, this goes all the way to the top or all the way to the center, and all of these things are interconnected. So why don't I hand over to you? Perhaps you, first of all, before we get to the book, mm -hmm. just tell us a little bit about your, your story and where you're coming from as a, as a Christian on this, just so we have a sense of you. Yeah, I grew up and was uh, heavily involved in the Anglican Church of Canada uh, throughout the late 1980s and the 1990s, um, particularly in Southern Ontario, where, where my family still resides. Uh, and I got involved through that with the Canadian Council Churches and the World Council Churches and did a lot of ecumenical work. So I was exposed early on to, uh, you know, the whole panoply of, of Christian traditions, um, uh, starting with Anglicanism, but but certainly with Catholicism, with Orthodoxy and, and with the Oriental Orthodox uh, Churches a little bit. Um, and I think I quickly realized um, through that experience that... Uh, you know, when Pope John Paul II started using this phrase uh, somewhere in the early 90s, I think it was, about a, a gift exchange, um, that uh, Christians of other traditions had things to offer each other. Um, and But in a selective and a discerning way. Um, it's not just, well, if you do this, then we must therefore adopt it, right? So we can look alike. Uh, it was a kind of a sense that, no, there are certain things that that uh, other Christians might have a particular strength at, uh, or certain insights that we might not be as uh, aware of. So let's start thinking about that. Um, you know, and then I spent some time teaching in Eastern Europe and, and uh, kind of fell in love with the um, Ukrainian 
uh, Greco-Catholic Church, of which uh, I, I'm a part. Um, and so I, uh, you know, have, have had this experience uh, within the Christian East, but but in some ways as a son of the Christian West, uh, trying to sort of say what you know what are what are the gifts that we all have to offer uh, each other because everybody struggles, right? Uh, and everybody's got problems, and uh, are there ways we can help each other? So that's kind of been uh, part of my uh, long-standing experience. And, and the thing that came through when I read it is that you're, you're certainly not saying, you know, we in the East, we've got the answers, you know, we've got right, all this. Right, right. You're acknowledging that, that, that it's, it's, it's exactly as you described, that there are difficulties everywhere, but there are strengths everywhere. And yeah. Yeah. That's, what, yeah. that's the spirit with which you come to it. Is, that's my sense anyway. Yeah, no, thank you. And I'm glad to hear that because I, I really, you know, see myself in some ways as kind of an enemy of any form of triumphalism or romanticism. Uh, you know, some people, and I went through this a little bit, if I'm honest, you know, uh, after I entered the Catholic Church in 97, you know, you sometimes have that kind of convert zeal in which you think everything is wonderful here and I rubbish everything that I've left behind. Um, but I, I, fortunately, I think I grew out of that. Uh, and and I, I realized that, uh, you know, no nobody has it uh, perfectly mastered and, and we need to have the humility to be able to uh, recognize when we need help. Yes. And... and of course, the the one thing that we have in the church is it um, is not it's not a secret of institutional governance. Right, right. It's God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. the. And so I, I just because I had um, I wrote a, a blog post on this and I got a lot of comments coming back. People saying, "What do you, this sounds like the Lutherans or this sounds like the Anglican Church." And I say, well, it might be, but that doesn't mean we're going to end up like the Anglicans because right. we have a key difference here. Right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and then, and I've I've said that in in the new book as well that that uh, uh, you know the the key difference or among the key differences for Catholics is that we have a defined, clearly defined deposit of faith. We have a universal catechism. I mean, there are you know there are standards, uh, and uh, Anglicanism has chosen by and large, not to go down that route, which I think has contributed to some of its problems. The fact that the Catholic Church, you know, has defined things doesn't mean that it doesn't have problems, as we all know. Mm. But uh, I think it is a, certainly a very distinct advantage. Right. So why don't you just summarize your argument? Um, and we will make the connection early on with the, the clerical abuse. I don't I don't want to diminish yeah. that at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but my... Um, focus in this um, is the the one that brought me into to your book when somebody handed it to me because I was interested in parish reorganization mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it made as a lay person I don't like wagging my fingers and you know bishops and saying you should be doing this yeah, yeah, I just yeah. think what can I do and be yes. positive and constructive and your book is telling me what I can do I think as a lay person um, as part of what you when you describe the underlying problem so mm -hmm. you just give us a summary of your thesis if you like yeah thank you that's good to hear because that's really what i was trying to do and write the book is to sort of say to people here's a framework within which you can see yourself doing something right a, a way in which we can begin to think our way and act our way out of uh, parts of this problem uh and, and and part of my frustration in writing the book was people you know i think even still today, are kind of spinning their heels uh, in, in denouncing certain things and, and expecting that, well, if we get a new pope or a different bishop or we get rid of certain clergy, then the problem's solved. 
that's not the whole case by any means. So yeah, I wanted to, people to feel like here's something that we can practically do. So I start locally uh, by design to be able to say to people, you know, we talk about the church as this big abstract institution around the world, but for most of us, the church is what we experience on Sunday morning, right? The church is where we get our kids baptized. We're probably married and we receive the Eucharist and we go to confession. Um, you know, we might have kids in the school. We might sing in the choir, all that stuff. So let's start at the parish because that's really where it's real for most people. And let's recover uh, a really strong sense of, of people being involved in the parish, including parish governance, uh, because there's no theological justification for the current system that says the pastor has a monopoly on all power in the parish. I mean, there's, there's no uh, historical or theological reason for that. Um, and so that's kind of what I wanted to start with, was to be able to say to people, you have a role to play. Uh, by virtue of your, of your baptism and the sacraments of initiation. Um, and you have a legitimate right to play that role. You have no, uh, there is no good case for you being excluded uh, from having a legitimate voice and vote in the major decisions of the parish. I'm and just so, going to interject one, one yep. moment there. I can, I can hear people already, alarm bells ringing for yes, certain people. Yes. Yes. Uh, we'll come back to the objections to that. I'm going to throw these at you later, but um, good, good. I just want to say that uh, this is not justifying the, the terrible experiences of parish councils that many yes. uh, pious yes. Christians, and I mean pious in a good sense, will yes. worry that you're, yes. this will sound to some people like you're pushing something which we know produces bad experiences as well. So just to reassure people, stay with us. We're going to come back to that. <laughs> yeah. No, and that's a very good point, uh, because I've seen that up close. You know, if you spend time in the Orthodox world or the Eastern Christian world, as I have, um, you you see that. Uh, you see parishes where uh, what you basically swap out is one monopoly for another uh, and one set of problems for another. So instead of the priest being the all-powerful, you know, generalissimo uh, who controls everything, you have kind of a faction you know, in the parish council, it may be some old family or some old money or a particular ethnic group or something. So my proposal is to say, no, no, we're not having monopolies by anybody. Uh, we have to look at the ways we set things up so that we say there are certain areas where um, we come together and hold each other accountable. Uh, it's, it's not the swapping out of one monopoly or other. So I mean, I'll give you an example. Example I use in the book. Um, let's say that you need a a change in leadership in the parish. Um, one of the things we've been hearing now for more than 30 years is that uh, priests who are a problem, whether it's with alcohol or sex abuse or you know financial mismanagement, are often just kind of silently yanked out. Uh, nobody's told why, and then somebody else is just as silently dropped in. Um, and I said, you know, there's no reason for that. I mean, there's no there's no reason for the bishop to be able to do that. Uh, you know, and here's where I draw on the examples of the Armenian church, uh, some of the other Orthodox churches, and the Anglican church that I grew up in, to say, when it comes to a decision like that, it's much better for everybody to have the parish council and the bishop working together. And so the bishop comes to the parish council and says, you know, I, I call up the chair of the parish council, I've been alerted to a problem with Father so-and-so, we need to meet. Okay, so we get in the same room, you know, you discover and disclose what's been going on. Bishop says, I want to move him. Parish council says, yes, we think you're right. Go ahead. Right? Um, 
bishop then comes back and says, okay, I've got a priest for you in mind. Um, here's what we know about him. Here's his personnel file. You can see there's no issues in there. He's not being shuffled around, you know. Uh, what do you think? And the parish council has a legitimate right to say, you know, uh, we think he'd be a great fit, or, you know, we have some concerns. Um, and then allow them to come to some kind of consensus. You know, so that's one example uh, where, as I say, the, the, the underlying principle through the whole book is nobody has a monopoly on decision-making uh, because the current system does that, and I think that's been a big part of the problem. Okay, so let's go up, or I don't know whether mm -hmm. it's down, yeah, yeah. through the <laughs> hierarchical structure. Um, finishing uh, last but not least with the, the Pope mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm. papacy. And yep. you've got a lot to say about that. Um, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, and you know, the papacy I think has really become too large uh, and has, has taken over too much uh, in ways that were certainly not historical. And I don't even think these are ways that were intended. Um, part of the problem, part of my argument is that we operate in the shadow of the 19th century, which for Catholics is not over. You know, it's the very long 19th century. Yes, yes. Um, that, that in fact, you could argue, starts with the French Revolution at the end of the 18th century. Um, and I think we got ourselves into an emergency situation where we felt like, well, we're gonna have revolutionaries attacking the church, we're gonna have Napoleon forcing the sacking of the entire French episcopate. We've gotta have a super strong centralized Pope uh, who can basically do everything. Um, and as that's developed, I think it's really paralyzed the church. It's prevented people from saying, well, it's not my problem, you know. I mean, there's an article today you may have seen just in the Washington Post um, about the, uh, the Bishop of West Virginia, Michael uh, Brandis, uh, who's, you know, was forced out last year. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a paper trail in Rome going back to uh, at least 2013, five years, about the abuses this guy was committing uh, because everybody kept saying, well, we can't do anything, just go to Rome. Uh, and that's the, that's the problem, and that's the default, I think, in the church today. Go to Rome, right? It's up to the Pope. The Pope's got to do this. And so part of what I try to do in the book is say, wait a minute, um, there's no reason for that. It's a very recent development, you know, 150 years, um, and we are now seeing that it doesn't work. Uh, and so we have to say, wait a minute, uh, what things can other uh, structures in the church, other levels of the church do that Rome does not need to do? So this isn't a shoving Rome aside, you know, but it's saying we need a proper devolution here. Um, and, you know, the person I'm, I'm echoing perhaps most strongly on this is Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, this is not stuff that I just made up. I mean, starting back, you know, somewhere around 1970, uh, you know, Father Ratzinger, as he was then, was arguing, saying there's way too much happening in Rome that's done badly because Rome is overworked. Uh, we need to have more robust local structures in the church to do things like hold bishops uh, accountable. Uh, so, you know, when I argue that, I'm, I'm arguing something that he and a lot of other Catholics have, have been arguing. And uh, again, this is going to... Uh, worry some. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, this, the, the people immediately, or I immediately think of uh, the First Vatican Council, the crystallization, if you like, in words of the ideas of the primacy and the infallibility mm -hmm. of the Pope. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I'm going to throw a, a summary of what I think you're saying to yep. you, and then yep. you, can, you can modify it or correct me. But again, what you're, you're not in any way arguing against the, the, the decision of that council. No. 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 So no one here is seeking to go against um, Catholic teaching, the decisions right. of the councils. Exactly. Um, the problem is that this has become... Uh, first, misinterpreted mm -hmm. and and seen to mean something which it which it doesn't. Yeah. Um, and first, and the, the other point is that this was not something that was new in the church. It was actually an articulation of what had always been and what had always been known. Mm -hmm. um, what did change is the perception. Yeah. Um, and there were and you mentioned Cardinal Ratzinger as was. Um, the same concern prior to this was expressed by Newman in, in mm -hmm. England. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And so th these are great figures who love the church. And it's n nobody is saying there's, there's anything wrong with the decision of the Vatican Council. Right. Nobody here, anyway. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the difficulty is the perception and this idea that you can't even criticize the Pope on anything. You know, mm -hmm. the that if you do somehow, you're being disloyal to the church. Right, and right. I love the stuff you wrote about the, 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 the new cult of personality, um, the person of, of the, of the yeah, yeah. Pope, yeah. Uh, rather, than, rather than his sort of teaching role. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so do you want to just come back at me on that a little bit? No, and that's very good. And, and thank you again for clarifying that. Um, yeah, Vatican I is, is obviously established teaching. Um, what I do in the book is is sort of say um, Vatican One has to be translated into more practical terms. Uh, you know, when we talk about uh, universal jurisdiction, for example, that term has never really been defined. Uh, to the extent that we define it, uh, we do so usually in codes of canon law, and codes of canon law can change, uh, and there's room to maneuver there. So. Yeah, nobody's disputing the role. Um, again, you know, an awareness of the Christian East or certainly the Anglican Communion would say, yeah, we don't want to gut the papacy because then you've got the problems we've seen in the Anglican Communion with, with essentially a powerless uh, Archbishop of Canterbury and the problems we see of a, a related type in Orthodoxy with the Ecumenical Patriarch, you know, constantly at loggerheads with the Moscow Patriarch, among others. So you, you need the Pope to have a clear role and you need him to be that guy who can really sort of, you know, break through the log jams and, and take decisions where the local church is paralyzed or, uh, you know, got some problems. But you don't need him to be the default guy to do everything. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I think um, that's become the, um, particularly at a psychological level, the, the way that most Catholics relate to the church, you know? It's what does the Pope do? What did the Pope say today? Uh, what, uh, what was the latest statement? Uh, you know, um, and that's basically what we go with. And, and to, to, as you say, to, to challenge any of that is like, well, you're being disloyal. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not Catholic behavior. That's cultic behavior. I mean, that's, that's, that's not helpful behavior. And what has happened is that instead of in persona Christi, the bishop has become in persona papacy or something yes yeah yeah everything is participating in this wrong view of the pope right exactly right down. And, exactly. And, yep. and the problem is ours as much as theirs yes terms. yeah yeah nobody gets off on this like there's no there's no nobody gets off the hook on this uh because we we uh, we've allowed that to develop and not challenged a lot of it and and uh you know that that's that's a problem in itself is our willingness to sort of sit back and say ah you know 
that's his problem, you know, uh, let him deal with it. Uh, instead of saying, wait a minute, you know, if the church is a communion of all uh, the baptized, um, do we not have some role to play here uh, rather than constantly deferring to him? Which in practice means that a lot of stuff doesn't get done, you know, because he's only one man and, uh, uh, you know, he, he can't do very much uh, by virtue of not having enough time, you know. Uh, we saw this last November with the American bishops meeting, and again last month when they met again, uh, this kind of sense that, well, we can't do anything, we've got to wait for the Pope to do something. Well, my response to that is to say there are more than 5,000 bishops in the world today. Uh, there's no possible way you can expect the Pope to be supervising all of them. You know, there's got to be another way of doing that. So we will, we have this situation where everyone that sits back and waits for the Pope to come in and save them, and it yeah. yeah. they might uh, grumble or complain mm -hmm. and say mm -hmm. that they're being disloyal, but. But, but nevertheless, it's all the two sides of the same coin. Is everybody sitting back and waiting for the the Pope to do that? Now, before we get to the impact this could changing this could have on reinvigorating parish life and therefore drawing people back into the churches, let's look at um, the way you introduce this subject, which is linking this in a in a, a psychological argument in mm -hmm. a sense. Mm -hmm. Why? this um, situation has led to the abuses of power, and particularly uh, the sexual abuse crisis. Uh, maybe you could just speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I, um, I think what we've done in the Catholic world, in, in some respects, is uh, to more or less turn the Pope into an idol. Now, that might sound like an outrageous statement to make, but, but uh, if you read the Catechism, it has a very interesting series of paragraphs on uh, idolatry, and it says, idolatry is a perennial temptation for Christians. You know, uh, I think a lot of us, we hear the word idolatry, and we think, well, I'm not one of the tribes of Israel out in the desert with a golden cow, so I'm good, you know? I don't have to worry about this. Well, I think idolatry is, is much more subtle than that and often operates in a kind of a semi or an unconscious way and we don't fully realize that we're making idols out of things. And so part of what I try to do in the first chapter in the book is to sort of say, I think we've made an idol out of the papacy. Um, and uh, we have um, people like uh, Sigmund Freud to help us out here. Uh, and again, I know that's a, that's a hugely controversial name um, for, for a lot of people, but uh, you know, I've been reading Freud for 25 years, and, and uh, uh, there are parts of Freud that I think are very useful for Christians. Um, and his whole life project in some ways, as Adam Phillips has summed it up, um, is to be against uh, forms of idolatry and illusion. And so what I try to argue in the first chapter is we've made an idol out of the Pope uh, and we act. And how do we know that? Well, look at the way we act. Uh, in the face of this papacy, we become passive. Uh, we don't challenge uh, we 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 just allow it to tell us what to do and what to think, and we behave accordingly. And so, part of what I'm trying to say is, let's wake up and 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 be more self-aware of how we have allowed the papacy to kind of invade our conscious Catholic mind, uh, and and become this central figure that sort of crowds everything else out. Um, so that when we say, wait a minute, there are other ways of of governing the church, for example. People, people assume that's impossible. 
You know, the, 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 the papacy uh, is so large that it kind of crowds out everything else. Uh, and we just uh, figure it has to be this way uh, because this figure dominates us uh, to such an extent that we lose our sort of critical capacity to say, should it be this way? And I could use a bit of psychobabble that probably doesn't come from Freud. Um, that what you describe is a sort of codependency. Well, yeah, that, that's, yeah, yep. And you see that. Who are to take advantage of that, and it attracts Catholics who allow them to do, to do so, and, and we end up in the mess that, that we have. Yeah. Well, and again, I think, you know, the last two American bishops meetings have been very clear examples of this kind of unhealthy codependency. You know, bishops say, well, we can't do anything because we've got to wait for Rome to act. Well, Rome doesn't have time or interest in a lot of these cases to do that. And so what you get is this kind of back and forth um, that says, well, I can't do anything. My hands are tied, right? Only Rome can do that. And then Rome doesn't act. So that becomes, and, and there's a long history of that. If you look at some of the early debates in the, in the plenary councils uh, of the 19th century uh, in the United States, you get a lot of bishops who are pretty open about saying, you know what? We need to show our support to, you know, the beleaguered prisoner of the Vatican, Pius IX, um, by letting him appoint new bishops for the U.S. You know, previously they've been elected by the councils here, but we need to show our support for this poor guy uh, because he's, you know, he's being hemmed in by Garibaldi and the Italian revolutionaries. So let's let him appoint American bishops from now on, um, which of course conveniently means that if he appoints a dud, it's his problem. It's not ours, right? We don't have to deal with this guy. We say, well, that's not my appointee. I didn't, you know, I didn't bring him in. So it does, you get that kind of unhealthy codependency, I think, and it's still there. I think it's still there today. And just for people who might worry about the mention of Freud, I, I'm not somebody, I, I'm probably one of those people, you anticipate this, and the, in the, some people are going to react against it. Yeah. What I would say is that I'll, I'll take your word for it, that you can use Freud to make this argument, but I don't think it needs that. I think it makes sense, what you're saying. Sure, sure. On a sure. sense level as well, actually. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, but, no, that's good to hear. Thank you. But um, really, um, if you give people power, it attracts people who like to make use of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it creates an unhealthy relationship. And It, it does. Um, what, what's happened recently, you described some of the reactions of the councils of bishops and the, the, the re-emergence of this crisis in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um and I would say, just at a personal level, I always just thought that, that what we were experiencing generally in the church, uh, uh, everything that's happened in the last 60 years or something, where it's really become obvious there are difficulties, um, that uh, it was a sort of benign neglect that, mm. uh, that, you know, we just somehow the situation evolved everyone was well-intentioned, they're fighting against a sort of in institutional inertia, uh, maybe they're not well-formed, um, one or two mavericks maybe, right, you know, right. fiddling with the liturgy, manipulating in Rome, we, you, know, you hear these stories, but, but now I no longer believe that. I, I think we're suffering from um, a, a deliberate attempt not only uh, the, the, the uh, crisis, the sexual abuse crisis, is in a sense almost a byproduct of what of what of the main mission, in a sense, 
which is to subvert the teachings of the church. I, I believe there are people, and many more than I previously thought, who mm -hmm. are not j just sitting back and letting it happen. They're, they're the architects of what's, what has happened. Yeah. And it's, it's a sort of group thing that has grown out of this psychology that you describe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm very much with you on that, and, and I've, I've shifted on that too. Um, you know, when I've, I first wrote about sex abuse in the church in 1992 uh, because there was a big report that came out in Canada that, that year. Um, and, you know, I've, I've kind of, you know, been watching my own reaction and reactions of others now for 20, 27 years, I guess. Um, and I think, you know, as you just said, a lot of us, and I was one of them until recently, felt like, yeah, there's a few on the fringe, you know, a few, few crazies. We get rid of them and it's smooth sailing. Um, I don't think that anymore. And I, I, what I've been struck by, especially over the last year since the McCarrick news broke, especially, is the number of people who are starting to say, yeah, I don't buy that either anymore. Uh, you know, I don't think it's just, well, we got to get rid of a couple of bad guys and we're fine. I think there's a bigger issue going on here. And it does. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a moment in the church where I think we've got to be sort of firing on all cylinders. You know, it's got to be structural uh, reform. It's got to be uh, a renewed uh, ascesis, you know, uh, a renewed ascetical life, um, a, a very different understanding of, of uh, fatherhood, uh, you know, different ways of exercising authority and clarity about what the church teaches. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a package deal. And I think there are things we can do. I think your book is, is not um, offering doom and despair. It's offering hope. Because what it's telling me as a layperson, I don't like, as I, as I mentioned, wagging my fingers yes, at things. Yes, yep, yep. I've got very strong views on the liturgy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like the liturgical movement. And, um, but I, on the whole, I don't like to be in a position where I'm spending my whole time picking the priest up on details of what he's doing, what he yeah. is. Yep. Um, so I, I, I would rather think, well, what can I do? So... Yeah. Where, where can I be, have an influence liturgically? Well, it's in the domestic church. It's how I, as a, as a member of the parish, participate personally in the liturgy. Those are things that I can change and focus on in myself, yeah. Yeah. regardless, almost, of what is happening mm -hmm. front mm -hmm. and centre. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'd like to get into that. But the one comment I want to make before we do that is that I... I, I know that people will be concerned about what you're saying, particularly pious and traditionally minded Catholics mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who have the best interests of the church at heart. Right. I'm not worried about the liberals who don't care or right. push us to one side. Yep. But um, the, the point that struck me is that what you're describing will, will allow the good to flourish. So when I think about where the successes have been in the last 60 years in the church, it's, um, it has been where the, uh, the lay people have taken responsibility to do things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and they've been free of the control of the bishops, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so think of the, the, the Catholic colleges, which are strong. These are new projects that have come up and really lay people have taken the lead. Mm -hmm. I think of the beacon parishes and churches, um, I mean, in some ways, it's sad that there are single parishes mm -hmm. known throughout the world yeah, as, yeah. As, as being beacons for yeah. liturgy, and, the, and the, you know, because everywhere else is a desert. But 
I, so influential in my life was the Brompton Oratory. Now, the, the structure of the oratorians is such that they have this autonomy, not only from central control within the, the oratorian organization, mm -hmm. uh, the, these are the oratories of St. Philip Neri, um, but also a certain autonomy from the local bishop. Once, once they're in there, uh, they respect the bishop, but, but they can do what they want to a certain degree. Yep. Some of them went south with the rest of with everything else. But, but the London Oratory, the Birmingham Oratory, the Toronto Oratory, which immediately come to mind, yeah. they took advantage of that. And they have an influence way beyond their, their local parish um, yeah. Yeah. as a result of this. And because the good will act. Yes, um, yes. And so I, I, anything that encourages that, I think, uh, and I, is a good thing. I think that's what you're describing there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I had uh, spent some wonderful days in the late 90s with the Toronto Oratory. Um, uh, and in fact, I was my first visit was right after uh, their church of Holy Family burned down. Uh, and so I, I heard the kind of the backstory about negotiation with, you know, the Sacred Architectural Commission of the Archdiocese for what they wanted to rebuild. Um, and, and because of that autonomy, they got away with a much, much more beautiful church, frankly, and a much more traditionally appointed church than they were going to have foisted upon them. Uh, and, and so, yeah, those kind of models I think are important. Um, and I just had a, an interesting email from Father Bob Wild about two weeks ago with Madonna House, uh, which is uh, an interesting um, lay-led apostolate in the Ottawa Valley, uh, with Catherine Doherty uh, being the foundress of that. And they have a very interesting structure too. Um, and the other piece that was in my mind as I'm writing that chapter on the parish is, you know, Pope Benedict in Summorum Pontificium uh, of 2007, uh, when he um, uh, kind of, as I would put it, strikes a blow for local liturgical freedom uh, by saying that, you know, parishes, uh, stable communities who want to use the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite can do so. Uh, and, and in essence, sort of cutting out a lot of the bureaucratic control on that that had been in place. Um, that's really the way to go, I think, because you're right, those, those kinds of initiatives, and, and we have those parishes in the East, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of Annunciation of, of the Mother of God in Homer Glen, south of Chicago, which is a real beacon for uh, Eastern Catholics in the Midwest, uh, St. Elias, uh, uh, outside of Toronto in Brampton, where I was married, um, you know, if you have the, the people freed up to do things, they can do wonderful things. Uh, and that's very much uh, part of what, what I was thinking of in, in that chapter, uh, particularly for liturgy, you know, because I'm, you know, I come out of, as I mentioned at the outset, I came out of a, a wonderful uh, Anglican uh, liturgical experience, you know, the prose of, of uh, Cranmer's uh, Book of Common Prayer and the English choral tradition, um, you know, and, and uh, uh, we've got to have ways of being able to preserve that without everything being sort of centralized and controlled by, you know, so-called experts uh, with their committees, uh, because I think we know how that story turns out. Yes, and so while the, the horror story, which everyone is aware of, the, 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 the newly ordained priest with great ideas, is somehow he's managed to get through the seminaries, yeah. get his head secretly, the liturgical traditionalist, comes into the parish, or, or let's say not newly ordained, but newly appointed pastor, what, wants to implement things, and then immediately the parish, the choir that's been there for 30 years, singing, the, you know, strumming their guitars, yeah, yeah. writes to the bishop, and the bishop just 
terrified of anybody complaining about anything mm -hmm. uh, supports the, the the this parish community now my thought is that um that might still happen <laughs> yes, yes. It, it, yeah, it yeah. the point about this is that when you give freedom to people they can use it badly mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and, and it's not otherwise it's not freedom that's right that's right uh, yeah. but the greater freedom of course is to use it well and you can't have one without the other that, that's that's the nature of a christian society actually that's right, that's right. yeah 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 and if you uh if you if you end up restricting things as we often do then i think what you get is a kind of a mediocre uh you know mediocre in the middle sort of thing um that everybody has to kind of hew to some sort of rough standard and nobody wants to be the tall poppy that gets lobbed off because uh you know you stand out because you've got too much whatever latin or incense or something yes um so as lay people um perhaps you could just g give us a little bit about your sense of the organization and um i think again stressing this point that each um grouping of people and each person has a sense of what their role is within this and it's going to rely on that yeah yeah trusting grace really that yeah. this will harmonize in some parishes so we can see that it'll cause problems but could you just perhaps describe that parish structure that you envisage and what we as lay people can do yeah yeah, I am. Um, I the the premise I operate from uh, is an ancient one, but it might strike some people as as uh, a little scary because they don't know the the tradition that far back. Person I draw on is uh, Nicholas Afanasyev, um, one of the great ecclesiologists of the twentieth century. In fact, he's the only Orthodox person cited in the documents of Vatican II. Um, Afanasyev talks about what he calls the three orders within the church. Uh, the laic, which is this term for, you know, the, the laity, uh, clerics and hierarchs. Um, that corresponds, in fact, to how the Anglican Church of my upbringing was structured. Uh, and it corresponds to how uh, parts of the Armenian Church uh, are structured today and, and some of the other Eastern churches. Uh, and so the idea is that we have to work together Nobody has a monopoly here uh, to be able to uh, inflict or enforce their will on the rest of the church. Uh, so when it comes again uh, to the parish, for example, the pastor and the parish council have to uh, at least talk these things through. There's no guarantee it's going to work out perfectly uh, at any point. But to be open with each other and to say, you know what? Um, I'm thinking that uh, we need to make some changes here. Uh, you know, our organist is retiring or the organ just died or something, you know. Uh, we'd like to make some changes to the music um, or whatever it is. And to be able to come to some kind of consensus and have this discussion uh, and, and uh, find a way to agree broadly uh, and move forward. Um, the big ones where I think that has to happen uh, the one is, as I mentioned earlier, about the change of pastoral leadership. Um, that has to be a cooperative uh, discussion between the bishop and the council. The other one is money. Um, and we're seeing this, you know, this has been a perennial problem in the church, and we're seeing this today, um, uh, again, with, with pastors and bishops who have exclusive say over money, how quickly that can be abused. Uh, and so what I, what I propose in the book is that the pastor and the parish every year have to agree upon a budget uh, and they have to hold themselves to that budget uh, and that's true at the diocesan level as well um, 
as a way of forcing transparency and accountability um, that really means something. Uh, and so we come together to agree for you know the 2020 fiscal year. Uh, here's how much money we're going to spend. Here's what we're going to spend it on. Here's where it's going to come from. Um, and at the end of that fiscal year, uh, we have a you know a transparent accounting of uh, of the books uh, to say you know what we we were over on this line, we were under on this line, um, but here's what the budget looks like a year later. Uh, so you 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 try as far as possible to cut off you know, the abuse, cut off the slush funds, cut off bishops that, that think they can just hand, you know, envelopes of, of cash to each other, um, no questions asked, you know, uh, pay for dinner all the time, hire private jets, you know, booze, flowers, the whole bit, all the stuff we've been hearing in West Virginia. You know, so you've got to, you've got to structure things uh, in a way that at the parish and the diocesan level, um, people know where the money's going and where it's being spent. Right. Um, I, I'm just going to tell you about um, the parish that I go to, Saint Elias, which is in Melton. Yeah, it's a very small mission parish, really, uh, with Father Sebastian Carnazzo, who's our, our pastor, who teaches for Pontifex University. Some will be aware of him. Um, and so the bishop came and gave us this this talk, Bishop Nicholas. Mm -hmm. um, he, right? he visits many of the parishes. He spends half his year traveling around the country visiting the parishes. So it's a geographically large diocese, but actually small enough that he can come and, and be pastoral. Mm -hmm. as a mm -hmm. And he talked about the organization of the parish, and he said, based upon his reading of the Acts, I don't know if it's his personal or he's drawing on a tradition of the reading, um, you, you have certain roles. The priest is, the, is in charge of the liturgy, mm -hmm. and you have mm -hmm. education, um, organization of social and sort of hospitality. There's a meal after every uh, every liturgy which we organize. And uh, Father Sebastian is sort of putting people in place. But I got my email last week saying you signed up for the main course just to remind from another parishioner mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to remind you that you're going to bring some chicken. And it's going, okay, fine. And that's what I, that's what I volunteered for. Um, and education, so that they. Um, so there's somebody who's doing the, the Sunday school afterwards and and they work in cooperation with Father Sebastian and everybody has a role and it's understood actually that that if you want to be part of the parish, you contribute in one of these sort of these roles, liturgical, educational, social um, and I can't remember the other, but there were four of them, okay. But, but, the way that Bishop Nicholas was describing is that most of us, our religious community is the parish, and therefore mm -hmm. we have probably natural charisms that will come in some way under these broad headings where we're meant to be. Hmm. And, and it, 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 the, you know, the, the principle is always there that you, you get more out of something the more you put in. And yeah. so if you discover where you're meant to be participating, um, then it works. And so we have a, now a parish that might get, well, when I first went there, um, it maybe used to get 40 people a week. It's now up to about 75. Mm -hmm. Father Sebastian says that the maximum he wants is about 150, and after that you send off another mission. Because That's smart. It undermines community. Yeah. Um, yeah. Through this, we have, uh, we already have, three or four who are training for the diaconite. Uh -huh. 
Okay. Uh, as they immediately, every guy that comes in is is you know what, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, he's, they're, they're, they're asked what role they can they can con they can play within the parish. I'm trying to be a cantor, and I may end up being ordained as a reader. We'll see. I don't know. Okay. But I'm learning all the chats and I'm taking my instruction. And so ev and everybody is playing their part. And regardless of the size, this is pulling people together. And you just see it happening. And it becomes, therefore, also the center of your spiritual life. It has a whole different meaning. Um, it, it, you feel like this is the thing that drives what I do during the week. Mm -hmm. I pray mm -hmm. the liturgy of the hours and I... I'm very interested in trying to, uh, part of what I do with the way of beauty is trying to encourage lay people to be good lay people in the parish. So my Benedict option, if you like, is actually go to your, you know, it, it all begins with us. It's not go anywhere. You look in so, at yourself and say, what am I giving? And then you become part of the community. Yeah. Um, and I think that what you're describing as is, is really a principle for the whole church, which mm. Bishop Nicholas was describing for little Saint Elias mm -hmm. in Los mm -hmm. Gatos, mm -hmm. California. So, yeah, yeah, I sent him, just as a footnote, um, I sent him the manuscript in draft, uh, and he was about halfway through it. He was going to write a blurb for it, but the publisher's deadline he couldn't meet because he okay. told me he was in California for a couple of weeks. Oh, with us, okay. <laughs> he may well have been, yeah. No, he's, he's, uh, I really like him, and I think he's got that vision from my, yeah, I've only interacted with him a little bit, but, uh, I mean, what you just described, I think, is, is absolutely the vision. Uh, and I've seen that in other Eastern Catholic parishes where it works, uh, and I think that has to be, uh, really held up, uh, for others today, um, because I think we're, you know, we keep hearing these headlines, I know I do, about people, you know, a massive epidemic of loneliness and isolation and all this kind of stuff. Um, the real advantage I think a lot of Eastern parishes have is we're not huge. Uh, and, and that's very attractive, as well as the dynamics you just described about pulling people in to use their gifts and so on. And, and when that works, it's a, it's a marvel to behold. Yeah. And the, the mission, the source of the mission is not the bishop. Right, right, right. Uh, Parachuting a stranger in. Yep. Once yep. Gatos, you know, is it, at one point we're thinking because I said, look, I'll learn to be a cantor. I, I'm an hour's drive away, I, I, but I'll do it on the condition that can we get a priest here in Berkeley? Yeah. Yeah. I want to have a church like this here, yeah. uh, and he said, like, okay, we'll try. But that that mission will come from Saint Elias, an hour away. Okay. It, somehow okay. it'll be coordinated in conjunction with that, so, and. Clearly, the bishop has a role, and I don't know precisely how it will happen. Yeah. But that's that's the, the the idea that you work with your strengths, yeah. and they become the, the source of goodness, if you like, within the the church as a whole. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you're right that uh, so much of the all of these problems are interconnected, um, and the the irony. Um, is that Vatican II, in terms of its documents and discussion, was really a counterbalance to Vatican I, I think, in yeah. the direction that you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. The disasters that we had were an imposition of something which, you know, we'll, people will know my view, but there's nothing really to do with what Vatican II was saying. Right. Well, right. 
the point in the context of this discussion, it was a centrally imposed solution in which nobody had any say at all. Everyone, and, yep. and, or they didn't say. That was the point. That yeah, people no. were saying, well, I'm not so sure about this, but, well, I, I guess, you know, I guess. The, yeah, the bishop's doing it, so I, I suppose we'll try and go with it. And Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Vatican II... Um, you know, is, is, I mean, it is just rife with irony and, and especially the, you know, the so-called synod that it gets created by the Pope unilaterally, you know, in 1965. I mean, there's all kinds of paradoxes and ironies like that, um, that, uh, you know, what is supposed to be a balance to the centralizing tendency of Vatican I, I think in some ways reinforces uh, the worst tendencies of centralization uh, after Vatican I. And, and you know, I, I think we're both thinking of the same example, the liturgy. Uh, you know, what happens after the liturgy, in the, ostensibly in the name of the council, uh, is, is, is a massive imposition uh, of, of centralized uh, authority by people like Paul VI, we're now realizing, who weren't exactly on top of all the files. <laughs> Uh, you know, so it's uh, it's a it's a very strange thing. At the same time, you know, I, I defend it because I think what it says about the Eastern churches uh, and in some of the other documents is absolutely necessary uh, and and very very true. Uh, but like all councils, you know, it's 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 a mess afterwards. Uh, the picture that I've got is that the impact that the council had on the Eastern churches, which it's almost gone unnoticed because everyone's yes. worried. Is yeah. actually what was intended because the Eastern Church were more set up naturally yes. um, to adopt this. What yes. you see is an invigoration of the Eastern traditions in the Eastern Catholic Church, yep. which, may, which may well see them, therefore, having greater greater influence on the church as a whole because that, that is where the strength is very yeah. often in the church. It's, it's not, not the only places, but. Um, but certainly it's redressed the, the balance, uh, I think. There's a new self-confidence, I would say, yes. in Catholic Church as a result of this, mm -hmm. and directly as a result of being encouraged to look to their traditions. It's right. sort of vague statements, but nevertheless, in the Eastern Church, they were able to, to understand what that meant. Is that fair, do you think? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think... Uh you know, and, and you probably know this history as well. I mean, the, the role of the, the outsized role of the Melkites at the council uh, was, was very significant in sort of helping uh, the West to be able to say, oh, yeah, there are other ways of doing things. You know, there are other ways of, of uh, uh, celebrating Catholic life and Catholic liturgy other than this kind of one model that we've, we've operated with. Um, and so I, I think... Uh, you know, I think I think the East does have a lot um, to to be able to offer the Western Church again, not in the spirit of triumphalism, because the East has problems like we all do, uh, but a way of saying, you know, you can be traditional, you can have beautiful liturgy, you can have strong parish communities, um, you know, hold the line on this stuff uh, without feeling like you're somehow selling out to the world. Um, I think that's still kind of a uh, a bridge that a lot of people in the Western Church are are struggling to get across. I, I, I want to, to close. Um, Before I do, I, I'm throwing this at you, and I, we didn't, I didn't mention this before, so yeah. I hope it doesn't knock you for, for six, as we'd say in England, to use a cricketing analogy. Um, but imagine we're in a parish where you know that there's, there's no... Uh, 
you might have a cluster of people who who are interested in what you're saying and they're asking the question okay what can i do i don't think it's worth my even going to the pastor he's so you know, he's ordering breaking bread uh everything is set in the ways that i i just feel are wrong and uh, it's going to be a battle um i'm in the minority what can i do yeah that's a great question um and that's really the question i think what can i do legitimately when certainly in the current structures in the current system everything seems kind of stacked against me um i think uh i think part of it starts very simply with with those gathering of of like-minded people uh of building of that kind of community within a community yeah. of that kind of fellowship um you know i it sounds almost banal to say but but i'm constantly reminded of the importance of you know the face-to-face -face encounter uh, just having coffee with people and, and, and building up the, the, the fellowship that way. Um, and then beginning to organize. Um, I think one of the downfalls of a social media age uh, is that we think that politics just involves shouting at somebody on Twitter, you know, um, rather than, no, you're going to be sitting, you know, on some folding chairs in a Paris Hall basement somewhere, uh, drinking bad coffee for a while while you plot, you know, what you have to do. That's politics. You got to organize. You got to, you got to talk. You got to go to meetings. It takes time. It takes effort. Um, you know, and, and, and slowly spread the message for people that it doesn't have to be this way. We can do things uh, in other ways. Um, and I think if, particularly if bishops today realize that people are serious about major reform, um, they're eventually going to wake up uh, and, and follow. Uh, particularly, I think, if people start to say, well, you know, we're just not going to support you uh, until we have a major accounting, right? We're not going to be sending money. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to be putting our kids in your schools. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to be doing these kinds of things until we start to see some major changes. Uh, and to the extent that the church has changed in the past in times of major crisis, it's eventually the bishops getting caught up to where the people are uh, and saying, you know, we can either get in front of this or we can get run over by it. Uh, but we're going to have to do something. So I think, you know, the, the meeting, the talking, the coffee, the dinner, um, uh, you know, and slowly looking for openings to sort of say, well, we can push a bit in this direction and we can make some changes here. And, and, and doing so, I think, um, you know, people have to do it in a way that makes it clear we're not here as the um, you know the committee of public safety and the French Revolution to start cutting heads off, you know, we're here to do it because we love you. You know, we love the church, we love priests and bishops. Uh, we love you enough to hold you accountable. We love you enough to want to help you because we know that you've got too much of a burden right now. Uh, we're not here to shove you aside. Uh, and so I think if people really come out with a, a graciousness in their their demeanor and attitude and a kind of a a cheerfulness and a gentleness and so on, um, that in itself, I think, is significant in helping people to say, oh, okay, these people aren't just here to try and run me out of town. Um, they're really here because they do, you know, even with all my faults, they do love me as the bishop or the pastor. Um, you know, I think human, we know this from our own experience, right? We're much more inclined to listen to somebody um, who makes his or her love for us manifest uh, than somebody who's angry and, as you say, waving a finger all the time and, and, and chastising. So I, I think a lot of it does come to, uh, you know, that basic, gracious community building and organization. I, I'm going to suggest something here 
Thank you. That's terrific. And I'm going to suggest something here in addition, or as a detail, really. Yeah, of what yeah. uh, and that is that uh, where I am, we have a little group that gets together every Monday. We did our first Twitter live stream, actually. Huh. 25 people viewed. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But we sing Vespers. Oh, and, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And so, and we're, 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 you know, I'm gathering anyone who's interested. It's just me. And, the, and so there's four, you know, five or six of us. And not everybody turns up every week. But we're learning to chant it. We're doing it in English. We're basing it on the Anglican ordinariate. Okay, okay. And, and we have our way of doing it, which is actually informed by what I've seen in the Eastern literature. So it's, it tends to be very straightforward singing. It's, it's not, um, I, can, I can't describe this without it sounding negative, but it's not an effective, effective yes, yes, yes. voice. If you sort of, mm -hmm. One of the great things you notice when you go to Eastern liturgy is people are singing in ordinary voices yes, as yes. an ordinary pace. So we use that manner. And it has a sort of masculine feel to it that, that, or that actually is in, inclusive to, to men and women. And we just do that and we create, and, and it does create community. Now, that is nourished by the masses we go to and the liturgies we go to mm -hmm. on Sunday mm -hmm. in separate places, all of us. None of us are actually in the same church. Um, and we come together and presumably then it transforms us supernaturally by degrees in ways which mm -hmm. we're not aware mm -hmm. when we go back to the parish. And mm -hmm. those habits of worship, which we are in full control of in that liturgy, we're going to take those into the, the parish setting and just be an example in a different sort of way. And so I think the domestic church is where the laity have full control. So let's exercise that control and build up communities. And you attach it to a dinner. Um, and then suddenly this becomes something that is social. Um, and, you know, we, we also, I live in a, what's a converted convent, actually, where somebody took the lease and let it rooms out to people. It's a great system. It's, it's wonderful. Nice. nice. Um, but we get together every Sunday, and gradually I encourage us to sing the Our Father. We're, we're from different backgrounds, and we, and we do that every time. And so then those people were primed. Some from here go to this Vespers every Monday that we do. Hmm. Um, and so you can see that little by little, people are changing in, in, their, in the way that they're participating in the liturgy. At the, this point, it has nothing to do with any priest or any parish uh, in, terms of its inf in terms of its inspiration, shall we say. But we hope that then we're taking that back to our communities. And suddenly the, the Sunday worship does seem like the focus Mm. However, whatever mm. form it is, this mm -hmm. is the 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 the, the central um, force that is informing everything else. You you feel it in the in 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 just in the way that you carry out the liturgy. That makes a, that makes a, any sense to you. It does, and it's it's striking how um, much of a parallel there is to a, a group I was involved with in in Canada fifteen years ago. Oh, yeah. uh, in a, a Ukrainian parish up there uh, that started doing the same thing with Saturday Night Vespers. Okay. Uh, and then it grew into a little series of talks afterwards. And then it was like, well, why don't we have dinner together, you know, and, and, and discovering friendships. And then, you know, so-and-so's uh, kid is sick. We're going to help him out with that, you know, and, and that kind of 
community within a community. And I think that's absolutely the way to go. Uh, and it, it uh, you know, even if it doesn't necessarily translate into a huge major reform in the church, it, as you say so well, it just, it, it changes people internally. Uh, yeah. and, and that is in itself no uh, small thing. Yes, uh, well, that's really interesting to hear. But that's, that's exactly what I'm hoping will happen. One thing connects with another. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we don't know the effect that it's having on others. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gender's a sort of humility because mm -hmm. you know, we're not campaigning. <laughs> yes, um, yes. And yeah. the other thing is it's not a threat to anybody. Right. We're not we're just doing it yep. Um, yep. and no one can you know is going to worry about us doing it yeah exactly point. exactly yeah 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 okay adam this has been wonderful for me yes. thank you for me too yeah yeah are you having read the book um and uh i'm just gonna wish you well and say goodbye and thank i you. hope that's cross again in the very near future thank i you like that very much. All right. Well, thank you again. Okay. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you're interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.